Guys, we're back to Babylon this week. Back to Babylon. Before we get into this Babylon, man, it's been a week, right? There's been a lot of stuff going on. There's been a lot of rough stuff going on. And we are saddened by anything that hurts others. The things that Jesus taught us to be people of peace, to be people of love, to be people of compassion and mercy are the things that we want to show. I just want to remind you, as we've talked about in this series, we'll say a little bit more about it again. There is no politics, no politicians, no policy, no president, and no other P's that are going to save us, right? The only salvation is found in Christ Jesus. That doesn't mean that there can't be good things people try to do, but what have we learned so far in this series? (laughs) We always end up in Babylon again. No matter what our best intentions are, we end up in Babylon. Unless what? Unless our eyes are fixed on Jesus. So my encouragement for you through this time, as there's still stuff going on, as social media continues to be wild, fix your eyes on Jesus. When you post, fix your eyes on Jesus. When you reply, fix your eyes on Jesus. When you have conversations with people outside of here, fix your eyes on Jesus. There's no other name by which we can be saved. Nothing else. All right, back to Babylon. Let's get a reminder and a refresher. Babylon shows up from Genesis to Revelation. It shows up as early as the 10th chapter and goes all the way to the end. This is something that is a core theme and idea throughout the Bible. It represents human kingdoms in contrast to God's kingdom. The very first time it starts showing up, people are building the Tower of Babel because they want to become as great as God. It's the third or fourth time within the first 11 chapters of the Bible that humans have rebelled against God and have tried to do things their own way and have shown God that we don't want to be like you. We want to do it however we want to. And God says, that's just not going to fly. It's not going to work. And we keep on seeing that. At this point in the story where we jump into in Daniel, all of Israel and Judah, the kingdom of God, God's people that are there in in that area of the world, have all been exiled and exported out of their land. So they are exiles in Babylon. They don't get to live in the promised land anymore because they were not following God, and God declared judgment on them. Here's a map. You've got Jerusalem way over here on the west side, then Babylon is kind of in the middle toward the east side. You'll notice there's the, the pinkish is the Babylonian, empi- the Babylonian Empire. The green is the Medio-Persian Empire. And we'll just touch on them today. So know that they are, they are coming as well. Other refreshers. Okay, we said chapter 1, Daniel and his friends were taken captive, but they keep God's values. Remember, they're asked to eat other things that they're not supposed to. Daniel says, I want to eat this stuff. Test it. Test it and see. And they test it, and God's way proves right. Second, King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. That means that human kingdoms will fall, but God's kingdom will stand forever. We'll talk about that again in a second here. Chapter 3, Daniel's buddies trust in the Lord and would die in fire rather than bowing to false gods. Right? They say, our God can save us from this. We're not going to bow down. But even if he doesn't, we're not going to worship you because we have our hope in someone else and something else than this earthly kingdom. All right, we're going to talk about a tale of two kings today. Really three kings, but you'll see that as we go. 
King Nebuchadnezzar, you remember, has this dream in chapter 2 about this giant statue. The head of gold is what he represents. Then there's a body of silver and then bronze and then iron and iron and clay. But then a giant rock comes and smashes it into dust that can blow away. It's totally destroyed. And so he understands from that, right, that God is going to destroy all the kingdoms and is going to be sovereign forever. No. Next chapter, he builds a 90-foot golden idol and says, I get it now. I'm the head of gold. Look at me. I'm so great. I'm the best. I'm the greatest. Hooray. He tells everyone to worship it. He is so angry. He is so angry. When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say, we don't have to worship your idol because we serve a God who's greater than you. He is so angry. The fire gets heated seven times hotter. The people throwing Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fire die on their way to put him in, put them in. Do they die? They don't even smell like smoke when they come out of it because God sends someone to save them, his angel or whatever it is exactly. We don't exactly know. And they come out, and Nebuchadnezzar says, man, your God is great. We should be worshiping your God. So he gets it, right? Showdown time. Does he get it or not is the question. He has another dream in chapter 4. So we're in Daniel chapter 4 and chapter 5 today, if you want to flip there in your Bible. We're going to be using the message today uh, because I liked how the message read on this, and I think it'll be a little more uh, jarring in a couple places, which I think is good. He has a dream about a giant tree. The tree is providing space for things to live. It's providing shade. It's protecting. It's beautiful and magnificent. And then an angel comes and tells somebody to chop the tree down. And the tree is chopped down to the stump, and that's what's left. And then there's these other things going on that are real weird, and he's real concerned about it. So he, he, he gets all of his wise men and his people to come and try to interpret it, and they can't. And we don't know why he didn't just go straight to Daniel, because Daniel's the one who's done this before. And he finally calls to Daniel, and he says, Daniel, here's my dream. And he tells him the dream this time. He doesn't make Daniel uh, tell him the dream this time. He says, Daniel, what does this mean? This is what I, King Nebuchadnezzar, dream, starting in verse 18 of chapter 4. It's your turn, Belteshazzar, which is Daniel's Babylonian name, just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah's Babylonian names. Interpret it for me. None of the wise men of Babylon can make heads or tails of it, but I'm sure you can do it. You're full of the divine Holy Spirit. My master, said Belteshazzar, or Daniel, I wish the dream were about your enemies and its interpretation for your foes. The tree you saw that grew so large and sturdy, with its top touching the sky, visible from the four corners of the world, the tree with the luxuriant foliage and abundant fruit, enough for everyone, the tree under which animals took cover and in which birds built nests, you, O king, are the tree. It kind of sounds like the last dream, doesn't it? A little bit. You have grown great and strong. Your royal majesty reaches sky high, and your sovereign rule stretches to the four corners of the world. But the part about the holy angel descending from heaven and proclaiming, chop down the tree, destroy it, but leave the stump and roots in the ground, built it with the strap of iron and bronze in the grassy meadow. Let him be soaked with heaven's dew and take his meals with the grazing animals for seven seasons. This, O king, also refers to you. It means that the high God has sentenced my master, the king. Okay, I told you that part sounds weird. You will be driven away from human company 
and live with the wild animals. You will graze on grass like an ox. You will be soaked in heaven's dew. This sounded crazy, right? The king of Babylon is about to turn into an animal and go running around in the woods and eating grass. Why? Why? This will go on for seven seasons, and you will learn that the high God rules over human kingdoms and that he arranges all kingdoms' affairs. The part about the tree stump and roots being left means that your kingdom will still be there for you after you learn that it is heaven that runs things. What's Nebuchadnezzar's problem? He doesn't know who's in charge still, does he? He doesn't know who's in charge still. So king, take my advice. Make a clean break with your sins and start living for others. Quit your wicked life and look after the needs of the down and out. Then you will continue to have a good life. What's Daniel saying the sins of Nebuchadnezzar are? What's he saying right here? Sinning, he's living for himself. He's doing wicked, and he's not looking after who? Who does God care about all over the place? You remember when we were talking about the prophets last summer? Who does God care about? The poor. Who does he care about? God. God cares, that's right. He cares about the poor and the oppressed and those who are weaker. And did you hear what he said in the dream? He said, there's enough fruit and food in the tree for everyone. But who's not getting it? Everyone who needs it. He's not taking care of the people. Do you think it's the most fiscally responsible task to build a 90-foot-tall golden statue? Is that the best way you can use your gold for your kingdom? It is not. So a year later, takes a whole year before this happens, King Nebuchadnezzar is standing on top of his balcony. Have you guys heard of the seven wonders of the world? You've heard of this before? One of the seven wonders is the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. This beautiful, beautiful garden set that's in Babylon. Probably really expensive. Who do you think built it? King Nebuchadnezzar. He's looking out, probably over the gardens. Looking out at his kingdom. Says, man, I've done it. I have made a beautiful, wonderful place by my own strength. No sooner do those words come out of his mouth. And God says, it's time for you to go, buddy. He sends him out. And he becomes like an ox. And he crawls around. It says his hair turns into things like feathers of an eagle. His nails grow out like the talons of a hawk. And for seven years, he is living like a wild man, like an animal. Because what's happened? What's one of the things that makes us special compared to the animals? We can make choices that affect others, right? We can think about people. We can think through things. We can say, man, this is going to hurt somebody else if I do this. Can animals do that? No, they don't. They're just concerned with whatever their primal needs are. So what has God done? He has given over Nebuchadnezzar to what he was becoming. You are only concerned about your needs. You're not concerned about others. So I'm going to make you like the animal that you've become. For seven years, this happens. which I just said. 
Each grass lives wild. But, verse 34, at the end of seven years, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked to heaven. I was given my mind back, and I blessed the high God, thanking and glorifying God who lives forever. Did something change in that seven years? Something changed. His sovereign rule lasts and lasts. His kingdom never declines and falls. Nebuchadnezzar's dad had conquered the Assyrian Empire and had started the Babylonian Empire. Does Nebuchadnezzar know something about kingdoms rising and falling? Has he gone out and destroyed other kingdoms? You bet, ruthlessly. Babylonian practices were horrific. He knows about rising and falling. What does he say? Man, God's kingdom never declines and falls. Life on this earth doesn't add up to much, but God's heavenly army keeps everything going. No one can interrupt his work. No one can call his rule into question. What's going to happen if we put our hope in other kingdoms? I'll give you three, three F's that aren't up here. If I can remember what they were. They're going to fail. They're going to fail. They're going to cause you to falter. Because if you follow them, what's going to happen? You're going to trip up. And eventually, like all kingdoms do, they're going to fall. They're going to fall. What does God's kingdom do? It doesn't fall. It will never fall. He realizes after the seven years, I am not the true king. God is the true king. Do we all have to come to that realization sometime? If we don't, what's going to happen? Well, why'd you ask? Second king, that was Nebuchadnezzar. Would the next king learn that lesson? King Belshazzar, don't get confused with Belshazzar and Belteshazzar. Belteshazzar is Daniel. Belshazzar is the next king after Nebuchadnezzar. He throws a boozy idol worship party using the special cups that had been stolen from God's temple by King Nebuchadnezzar when he had conquered Israel. Does that sound like a good plan? I'm going to take these holy vessels from the temple and I'm going to get drunk with them, and I'm going to worship my idols. Good plan? Think God's going to be happy with this? At that very moment, Daniel chapter 5, verse 5, after this party is started, the fingers of a human hand, imagine this, a hand severed off, maybe, just shows up. All right? This is thing from Adam's family. And begins writing on the lamp-illumined, whitewashed wall of the palace. When the king saw the disembodied hand writing away, he went white as a ghost, scared out of his wits. His legs went limp and his knees knocked. He yelled out for the enchanters, the fortune tellers, and the diviners to come. He told these Babylonian magi, anyone who can read this writing on the wall and tell me what it means will be famous and rich. Purple robes, the great gold chain, and be third in command in the kingdom. He's scared. Some kind of floating hand is writing weird stuff on the wall. That would scare me too. What does it say? Well, nobody can figure out what it says, of course. 
And finally the queen says, hey, don't you remember that guy that would always come for your dad and deal with things? Or maybe it's his grandpa. It's hard to say from the translation. We're going to go with dad in this one. Why don't you call him in? So Daniel gets called in, and he says, man, you can leave that robe and that gold chain behind. I don't need that stuff. But let me tell you what's going on. He quotes back to Belshazzar the story of chapter 4. First, he walks in and says, don't you remember? Your dad would not humble himself before God, and he was sent into the wild and turned into an animal and had to eat grass. And then he came back and he got it. Don't you remember that? Because he knows he does. You are his son and have known all this, yet you're as arrogant as he ever was. Verse 22, look at you setting yourself up in competition against the master of heaven. Whew. Against the master of heaven. How's he setting up in competition? He's using God's holy things to worship false gods. Is God like that? When we put our, take our things that are supposed to belong to God, when we take our Bible verses, when we take our images, when we take these things and we put them in a place they don't belong, when we use them in a way they're not supposed to be used, when we profane those things in the name of things that God does not support, is God like that? No. No. Put yourself in competition against the master of heaven. You had the sacred chalices from the temple brought into your drunken party so that you and your nobles, your wives, and your concubines could drink from them. You used the sacred chalices to toast your gods of silver and gold, bronze and iron, wood and stone, blind, deaf, and imbecile gods. But you treat with contempt the living God who holds your entire life from birth to death in his hand. You are worshiping nothing, and you are ignoring the one God that has any authority. God sent the hand that is that wrote on the wall, and this is what is written. Mene, Tekel, and Paris. This is what the words mean. Mene, God has numbered the days of your rule. They don't add up. God's taking accounting of what you've been doing. It's not good. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales, and you don't weigh much. Other, other translations, you've been found wanting. The thing you need that keeps you there, you don't got it. Paris, your kingdom has been divided up and handed over to the Medes and the Persians. Belshazzar says, I think I am the true king. That very night, that very night, he went ahead and gave Daniel the purple robe and made him third in command in the kingdom. Did it matter? That very night, he's uncrowned by God, the true king. The Medo-Persian Empire comes in and they kill him that night. And his reign is over. He did not humble himself before God. So you say, hold on now. Now, some of these things I can kind of see how they apply, but I'm not a king. And these are stories about kings. Well, aren't we, aren't we a little bit? Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and following. 
God made us to rule, it says, over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, all the creatures that move along the ground, to govern and subdue the land. We are made in God's image. Who is God? The true and great king. We are given royal responsibility. And so when we look at this, and you think about that, right? Like, what can kings do? Kings have power, right? Their word makes things happen. Their actions change the course of history. And you say, man, I don't have that kind of power. But don't we a little bit? Don't the choices that you make affect those around you? If I do something good, can it bless? If I choose to follow the way of evil, can it hurt and destroy? This is that free will that we talk about, that God wants us, that God asks us to do things a certain way, that it might bring flourishing and beauty and wonder and love into this world that he's created and is good. Like Stan said, But we can do the opposite too, can't we? Because God gave us authority to rule on his behalf. How are we going to use it? How are we going to use it? Living fully the way God intended, Jesus and Jesus alone shows us what it looks like to rule in line with God's will. If you want to know what it looks like, to be the kind of ruler, to be the kind of king, to be the kind of person you were created to be. Who do we look at? We look at Jesus, right? We look at Jesus. We meditate on Jesus. We think about those stories. We ponder them. We pray over them. We read them. We get to know the word of God, Jesus. The word become flesh. I'm going to read you these things again. I want to ask three questions of you. Chapter 5, it says, again, you are his son, he says to Belshazzar. Yeah, you're as arrogant as he ever was. Look at you setting yourself up in competition against the master. We don't want to be in competition against the master, do we? What does he say to Nebuchadnezzar before he gets turned into an animal? He says, king, take my advice. Make a clean break with your sins. Start living for others. Quit your wicked life. Look after the needs of the down and out. Then you will continue to have a good life. So how do I rule? And whatever your domain is, maybe it's your house. Maybe you have more authority than that. Maybe you're a manager. Whatever it is, whatever that realm of authority is, maybe you're a kid and it's the dog. Maybe it's your stuffed animals that you can line them up the way you want to. Whatever it is, how do I rule? Do I set myself up in pride or in competition against the master of heaven? Am I battling, is my will battling what I know is God's will over and over again? Do I hold on to things from my wicked life? Is there something I don't want to let go of that I know I need to give up? Do I look after the needs of the down and out? Am I paying attention to those people around me who are hurting? Am I yelling and say, deal with it? Or am I saying, man, I can help. I can serve. I can love. How are we ruling? How are we ruling? Do I hold Jesus as my true king? Who am I looking to as my example? 
Who dictates the way I live my life? Me or Jesus? That's right. We want it to be Jesus, don't we? If you don't know how Jesus would interact with people in a certain situation, read the Bible. If that doesn't give you enough clarity, come to the church. Talk to someone who you trust, who you know has been living a life following Jesus. There are people here who have been studying and serving and living it for their whole lives. The way the world understands Jesus does not reflect the Jesus in the story, the Jesus that goes to the cross, the Jesus that gives himself up and lets people beat and abuse and destroy him. That's who we're called to be. Last week we read from Philippians chapter 2, Jesus didn't even hold on to being God, but he gave it up, made himself nothing. But God exalted him to his right hand and gave him all glory and majesty and authority because Jesus lived the way he was supposed to. And so he gets to reign in glory with God. That is our future too. That is our future too. May we reflect the life of Jesus. In a second, we'll stand and sing. Let me read these verses from the end of chapter 4 of Daniel, of what Nebuchadnezzar says as our closing. He says in chapter 4, verse 36, At the same time that I was given back my mind, I was also given back my majesty and splendor, making my kingdom shine. All the leaders and important people came looking for me. I was reestablished as king in my kingdom and became greater than ever. So what's he going to say now? Because I'm the best. Nope. He got it, finally. And that's why I'm singing. I, Nebuchadnezzar, singing and praising the king of heaven. Everything he does is right. And he does it the right way. He knows how to turn a proud person into a humble man or woman. May we be humbled before God that he might lift us up. If there's anything you need today, if there's any prayers or anything else we can do, why don't you come on down as we stand, as we sing.